thank you once again for the privilege of being allowed to speak here. We're going to continue, as we have been doing, looking through what is normally termed Passion Week. We have looked through the period uh, of Christ's time where he spoke in the temple, where he talked with people. We have looked at the time of the Last Supper. He and the disciples have eaten, have walked, have talked. They have now come across from Jerusalem the city, across to the, the mountain that's on the other side. And they have come to the place which is known as Gethsemane. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you might, Lord, open our hearts and minds, open our eyes, teach us, Lord, the things that you would have us to know, to understand, and to change our hearts in the way they should be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just uh, that's better. It's called, everybody calls it the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And I, I, I do it myself, right? It wasn't. It wasn't a garden, it was an olive grove. Now, there's a difference between a garden and an olive grove. When you go there now, those nice gentlemen from the Franciscan church have got a little garden there with about a dozen olive trees in it. Okay? Possibly, because olives are such a long-lived plant, they could have been plants there when Jesus was there. And they've got a, a garden. It's very sweet and it's nice and it's tended beautifully and they even pick the olives every year. But it wasn't. It was a commercial olive grove. There's a difference between having one or two trees in your backyard and having an orchard. Right? This was not a garden. Okay? Nor was it little. Because remember that this place is called the Mount of Olives. It, the whole mountain was covered in olive trees. When you stand there and you, you look across to where Jerusalem is, you, it, it, it's now so built up and built over that you lose this sort of feeling that that entire side of the mountain and possibly over onto the other side was all olive trees. Stacks and stacks and stacks of great big old olive trees. trees. And it was... It was not even called Gethsemane. Right? That wasn't the name of this place. Gethsemane means the place of the olive press. So within the olive grove there was an olive press. And naturally they called that spot where the olive press was the place of the olive press. So Gethsemane wasn't a garden. And it wasn't the name of the whole area was that little spot. Now we, we know 
that it said that Jesus and his disciples often went there. We also knew that this was where uh, Judas would, would send the people to when he betrayed our Lord because he knew that that was where they went. So where was it? Well, I think, and I think logically, it was at the olive press. Okay? It was at the olive press. That's where they used to go. Nor were they alone in this. <coughs> Remember, it's Passover. Hundreds and thousands of people, and possibly hundreds of thousands of people, have come to Jerusalem for Passover. There isn't enough places to stay. But, it's April. Now, April in Palestine is pretty nice sort of weather. So people would sleep out. And they would sleep out in the olive groves across from Jerusalem. It is likely that there were lots of people camping out, sleeping out in the olive groves. And it was not an uncommon thing to do. Olives weren't going to be harvested for several months, so there was no danger to the crop. And uh, they just camped out there. So we're looking now, and I've moved out of Luke, which is where I've normally been speaking from. I want to have a look in Mark. Mark chapter 14. You'll find why in a moment. Mark chapter 14, the first note is, of course, in verse 26, Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Okay? So, you come out of Jerusalem, you go down into the, the, the valley area, you cross over the brook Kedron, and then you're coming up again. Okay? And it's steep. It's seriously steep ground. They, we know that they, they had a reasonable amount of light because it's a full moon. So they come down, and they're heading up. In verse 32, And they came to a place which is named Gethsemane. So they've come to the olive press itself. Now the olive press itself, it's not a big building. It would be an olive press and its area would be no more than probably a little over half the size of this hall. It's not large. You just need room for the, uh, the stone well, the room for the donkey or ox to pull the, the, the wheel around to crush the olives in a spot for them to actually start pressing out the olive paste and to get the oil out of it. Not that big. And he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. Now I wonder how many times had they heard that? How many times? I think they'd heard that a lot of times. That Jesus would go off and pray with his disciples and pray apart from them. He'd just head off and spend time in prayer with his father while 
they would sit and wait. Verse 33, and he taketh with him Peter and James and John. Why? Why didn't he take all 12? Why didn't he take just one of them? Why not just Peter? Why not just John? John, who it said, this was the disciple whom Jesus loved. This was someone he had a special relationship with. This was the one who'd been closest to him at the, at the Last Supper. No, he took Peter and James and John. Did he take them for support? Possibly. I mean, you think about it. This is, it's getting hard. It's getting very heavy for him. <coughs> he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Did he take them for a bit of encouragement? How good would it have been for him to have heard from them, Master, we, we, know, we don't know what the Father has planned for you, but we're confident that you can do it. How much would he have longed to hear those words from his disciples? But he didn't. He got nothing from them. From this point on, from this point on, I believe that our Saviour was the loneliest man on the planet. Utterly alone. So why did he take them? Why did he take Peter, James and John? Why those three? Well, there is a principle. And this principle is found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Look over in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Now, it's a legal principle. Deuteronomy 17, 6. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness... He shall not be put to death. It's a legal principle that a capital crime in Israel required a, required a minimum of two witnesses, preferably three. One witness wasn't enough. You needed two, preferably three. So Jesus was providing himself witnesses. Peter, James and John. In fact, this principle, Jesus himself elaborated on it and turned it from just a legal requirement to a, to a more general principle. Because in, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, he says, when he's talking about discipline in the church, he says, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. There you go, there's a principle now. It's changed from a legal rule to a principle. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You know, it's interesting, this is, uh, this is repeated as a principle in 2 Corinthians. 
Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. He's quoting. You realise that in 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul is quoting there. And he's not quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Matthew chapter 16. Matthew, sorry, Matthew 18. He's quoting Matthew chapter 18. And you go, yeah, so? Think about it. 2 Corinthians was written 60 AD. The events in Matthew chapter 18 happened in 33 AD. And in 27 years... Paul was able to quote from Matthew. He had the written material which formed the basis of Matthew written down so he could quote from it. In fact, it's something I don't do very often, but I dug out my my Greek New Testament and I had a look at the words, the very the, the words used in in 2 Corinthians 13. With the exception of two letters, which are pretty irrelevant, it is word for word what is in Matthew chapter 18. It is an exact quote. Not a, I sort of hear it like, or it sounds a bit similar to. No, it's a word for word quote. Paul is quoting Christ, written down only 27 years after the events occurred. Oh, please, do not ever fall prey to those people who will tell you that the Gospels were written around about 200 AD or something like that. No, they were written down really early and people had access to them. So, that was just a, a reference there. There we go. Peter, James and John were taken with Christ in Gethsemane to be a witness. Now, this was not the first time they had been taken to be used as a witness. It's interesting that these events are occurring in Mark. Almost all of them are found in Mark. You know, people will say things like, oh, everybody knows that Peter, James and John were the, the special three. Well, just because everybody knows, everybody knows lots of things and everybody is usually wrong. But it's in Mark we find these references. Deliberately, I believe, that Mark noted that Peter, James and John were the witnesses to these things. To what things? <coughs> Let's start. The first time we find these three men mentioned together. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Starting at verse 16. 
Mark chapter 1, starting verse 16. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Verse 19. When he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them. They left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Where he find Peter and James and John recruited at the same time from their job of fishermen. Um, apparently James and John were the uh, part of that well-known fishing cooperative, Zebedee and Sons. Uh, and it was no small enterprise either. For you'll notice that it's Zebedee, the dad, he was still there with the hired servants. This was not a fishing family. This was a fishing fleet. You don't need hired servants if you've got four or five men to run a boat. You only need the hired servants when you've got multiple boats. Zebedee and Sons was a sizable operation with several boats. Now what happened? Well, these were the, these were the first disciples recruited. Peter, his brother Andrew, and James and John. Peter, James and John. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. What was the first thing that they were witnesses to? They were witnesses to the authority of the Son. He taught as one that had authority. Now, when you, when you teach, there are two ways you can teach. You can teach by saying, so-and-so says, this person says. Or you can teach by saying, I say. Jesus did not teach by saying, Rabbi Hillel says, and Rabbi Zimmerman says. He taught by saying, I say that this is what men should do. He taught as one that had authority and not as one of the scribes. He had authority to teach. Then we find in verse, 30, verse 23, and there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. He had authority to clean. Jesus had authority to teach and he had authority to clean. Then when we find in verse 29, And forthwith when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Peter, James and John. But Simon's mother lay sick of a fever and anon they tell him of her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. He had authority to teach. He had authority to clean. And he had authority to heal. They were witnesses of the son's authority. This was what Peter and James and John were to be. Witnesses to the son Firstly, of his authority. Secondly, turn over a few pages to Mark chapter 5. 
Mark chapter 5. Verse 21. Verse 21. This is interesting stuff here. Verse 20, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jarius by name. When he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. A certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about him in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? The disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and thou sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling and knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told all the truth. He said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh unto the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. When he was coming, he said unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, them that were with him, Peter and James and John, and entereth in to where the damsel was lying, took the damsel by the hand, and said unto her, Talithia kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose for, and walked, for she was of age twelve years. They were astonished with a great astonishment. They were witnesses. They were witnesses to the Son's power. They were witnesses there, first of all, when a woman was healed by touching the hem of his garment. Now people might think, that's what sort of superstition is that? No, no, no. It's not a superstition. Nor was it some idolatrous belief. For the Jewish people believed and had taught that the prayer shawl of the Messiah brought healing. You know how the Jews have a prayer shawl and they're supposed to have the tassels on it? Well, they believed that the tassels of the Messiah's prayer shawl brought healing. So when she went in and reached out to grasp the prayer shawl of him, she was in fact saying, 
I believe He is the Messiah. I believe He is the Anointed One of God. And that therefore, His prayer shawl brings healing. And she was right. And He said, Thy faith hath made thee whole. But now we find this little girl died. Now they'll say, oh look, you know, she wasn't really dead. She was just, you know. No, um, these people knew dead. These people were very well familiar with what dead looks like. There's two things you need to realise. When we talk about the Son's power, these three men, Peter, James and John, were witnesses to the Son's power. Number one, God is never too busy. He's on his way to heal a little girl who's dying and someone interrupts for their own problem. God is never too busy to heal you and to hear your problem. You got a problem with God? You got a problem that needs his attention? He will stop looking after the entire universe to listen to your problem. He's never too busy. The other thing is, he arrives there and they say, ah, girl's dead. Do you think that matters to the one who created the universe? God is never too late. He's never too busy and he's never too late. They were witnesses. They were witnesses of the Son's authority and they were to be witnesses of the Son's power. The third time we find these three men together. Oh, there's a surprise. It's in Mark. Mark chapter 9. As I say to some of my newbies when I'm teaching, do we see a pattern here? Chapter Mark 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up to an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias, or Elijah, with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make these three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. And he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only and themselves. They were witnesses of the Son's glory. A witness of the glory that he had before the foundation of the world, they got a look at. It's interesting that as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one another, saying, what does the rising of the dead mean? Now, <laughs> we, because we see it from the other side, we've already, we know the, how the story ends. They didn't. 
And so Peter, James and John were going, what does he mean, risen from the dead? What possibly could that mean? Now, from our point of view, it's obvious what that means, but they couldn't understand what this business about rising from the dead meant. But they were witnesses of his glory. Now, you, do you reckon that that affects a person to see something like that? You reckon Peter, James and John, it sort of got to them, uh, you know, when they saw that? Have a look over. 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. A witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Or look over in Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Oh yeah, it, it got to him. It, it, it affected Peter, what he had seen. In fact, you want an interesting little exercise? Read 1 Peter and write down every time he uses the word glory. In every chapter, at least once, he refers to the glory of God. Yeah, it got to him. He had been a witness to the Son's glory. He'd been a witness to the Son's authority. He'd been a witness to the Son's power. He'd been, now he was a witness to the Son's glory. Back again to Mark. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. That's almost, it's almost insulting. He's saying, ah, oh, yeah, you know, the, the, the hick rabbi from Nazareth. Have a look at really what a big city we're in. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. You know, you go to the, around the corner from the Wailing Wall, there's a spot there, and you can see the stones they threw down off the top of the Temple Mount. Not one stone left upon another. And as he sat down upon the Mount of olives again over against the temple now that is he's on the mount of olives and he's looking across towards the temple Peter and James and John and Andrew 
asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the signs when all these things shall be fulfilled? Who came to him and said, Master, when's it all going to happen? What's going to happen? When's it all going to be happening that all these things that you've talked about, your coming in glory, the restoring of the nation of Israel, when's it all going to happen? Who came and asked? Peter and James and John. Again, they were to be witnesses of the Son's return. They were to be witnesses of the teaching about the Son's return. Just turn over a page in your Bible. It's interesting that these things are all happening within a couple of pages in my Bible. My, yeah, I don't know how many pages it takes for you, but... Verse 13. Sorry, verse 36. Of the same chapter, Mark 13, Mark 13, 6, 36 and 37. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto you all, watch. Now I'll just look across the same chapter, into the next chapter. Same page for me. And in Mark 14... I find in verse 34, and he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt, and he cometh and findeth them sleeping. Said unto Peter, Simon, could sleepest thou? Could not thou watch one hour? What were those verses from the previous chapter? Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. What I say unto you, I say unto you all, watch. They were asked to watch just for one hour. With their master and they fell asleep. Watch ye and pray. Lest ye enter in temptation. The spirit truly is ready but the flesh is weak. Verse 39 and again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. When he returned he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and said unto them. Sleep on now. Take your rest. It's enough. The hour is come. Thou are to be witnesses of the Son's passion. To be witnesses of the Son being prepared for the crucifixion. These men were witnesses. There was one last time they were together to act as a witness. For in the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 6 
It says, Ye shall be witnesses of me. That's what their job was, to be witnesses. That's why he'd selected those three men. They were to be with him at these important events and to be witnesses. James, in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is the first to die. He's the first of the apostles to die. Not the first martyr, but the first of the apostles to die. John was the last. Peter, well, he was just the noisiest. They were to be the three witnesses. The first to die, the last to die, and the spokesman. What's a witness? Now, in my, my line of work, I have a fair bit to do with witnessing. Witnesses. I come across them all the time. Do you know that there are rules for a witness? Anyone? Now, I shouldn't ask if anybody's ever had to go to court. That can get embarrassing. But when you do, let's assume and let's hope that you've been called as a witness and not to answer, no excuse, your worship. And You've been called as a witness. What does a witness do? When you go to court, a witness tells what they heard, what they saw, and what happened to them. A witness may not put in their own opinion. Not allowed. A witness can't say, I think that, nope, you'll hear objection, your worship. I request that that last remark be stricken from the record, so ordered. The jury will disregard that comment. You can't say what you think. You can't give your opinion. You can't sit there in the witness box and say, nah, hang him. No. You are restricted to say what you heard, what you saw, and what happened to you. When these men were called to be witnesses of the Son... Witnesses of the Son's power. Witnesses of the Son's authority. Witnesses of the Son's glory. Witnesses of the Son's suffering. Witnesses of the Son's coming again. They were to say what they heard, what they saw, and what happened to them. And you know something? You are called to be a witness. Who? Me? Yes, you. You are called to be a witness. Called to be a witness of the Son's authority. The Son has an authority to call people unto Him and heal them. If He's done that to you, you're called to be a witness of that. The Son has the power to save souls. If that's happened to you, you're called to be a witness to His power. The Son has... We are called to be a witness of the Son's glory. You know, we've, we get a glimpse, an echo, a, a reflection of the glory 
that is coming. And we're called to be a witness of it. After all, is it not written that I have not seen, ear hath not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love Him? But you know, we, we get just a glimpse. We just get a little picture, a little vague sense of it. And we're called to be a witness of His glory. The sun is coming back and we are to be a witness of the fact that the sun will return. The sun's passion. The death that saved us. We are called to be a witness of it. The things that God has done in your heart, the things that you have seen happen in your life, the things that have happened to your soul, you are called to be a witness. Just to say what you've seen, what you've heard, what's happened to you. That's what a witness does. If it's if you've seen it, if you've heard it, and if it's happened to you, you're called to tell about it. Well, there is one minor problem. What if it's never happened to you? What if you can't be a witness to these things? Because they've never been a hap- it's never happened to you. There's nothing for you to tell because there's nothing there. You've heard nothing, you've seen nothing, you've felt nothing. You can't be a witness of something that you don't know about. If you're not a witness to the power and the authority and the glory of God, you should be. And you need to find someone today and talk to about it. The Son came to heal, to call, to seek and to save that which was lost. And you're either a witness to it or you need to be. You need to be a witness to the power of God seeking and saving that which was lost. And if it's never happened in your life, you need it to happen in your life today. To get a story to tell, to get a song to sing, to get a life to be lived, to get a future to be looked forward to. That's what he offers. Uh, Peter, James and John. What a trio. What a bunch of witnesses. The things they saw. The things they heard. The things they were a witness to. Peter, who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. James, the first one to seal his testimony with his own blood. John, who would live to over 90 and be at the end the last man standing. What a group. Three witnesses. But we can be a witness too. In our, in our lives, in our homes, in our cities. There is a bunch of people out there who desperately need to hear from an authoritative witness of the power of the Son, of the authority of the Son, of the glory of the Son, of the return of the Son, of the passion of the Son.
to save souls. You've, there are only two groups of people here, either witnesses or those who should be. If you're a witness, be a good one. Be a clear one. Be a forthright one. If you're not a witness, find one of the witnesses today and have them tell you of the things that God can do in your life. Thank you.